ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. I'm Clint Jasper, and it's great to have your company as we take a trip around a big country. This week, we're heading to the calm blue waters off the coast of Gari, Fraser Island, to join whale watchers who are being treated to a spectacular display as record numbers of humpback whales make the journey south as part of their annual migration. We'll hear about a bold plan to ensure the survival of a threatened species of gum tree in the face of a warming climate in southeastern Tasmania. And we'll meet one of the young mums who's part of a growing number of women balancing the demands of family life with flower farming. She's got a portable cot popped up in the paddock, allowing her to get on to tending to her blooms while her baby naps nearby. We're just, you know, women on the land and um, just want to be at home with our kids and gardening too, you know, Just, just being at home and starting something, doing something for ourselves and for our family. And gardening, growing cut flowers, I guess, is the perfect sort of ideal, yeah, setting. Combining flowers and family, that story is coming up. First today, an astonishing discovery of thousands of unknown paintings in a derelict South Australian farmhouse is making waves in the art community. ABC producer Emily Bisland has the story. At the Hamilton Art Gallery in Victoria, the room is full of artworks that appear to have been made by a famous abstract painter, a modernist. But the man who made them was Robert Martinson. It's one of those stories from the art world that captures the imagination, the discovery of a reclusive and prolific artist who painted in complete secrecy, whose work was only found upon his death. The surfaces are extraordinary because whatever he could find, he painted on. Curtains, blinds, anything. Uh, Tin, cardboard. There, There was this absolute obsession to paint and if he had an idea in his mind and he didn't have a canvas, well then whatever was at hand. For Dr Elizabeth Arthur, who is a psychoanalyst and an art valuer, this collection was the find of a lifetime. How many people had the opportunity of discovering something like this? Dr Arthur spent many years studying the man through his work, cataloguing his artwork in her 2020 book, The Secret. Well, when the paintings were discovered, The final number, when we had them all set out, the final number, I think, was 7,003. The man who made them was Robert Martinson, a retired math teacher who lived in a derelict farmhouse on the outskirts of Mount Gambier in South Australia. When he died, his astonishing secret was discovered. After he died, they contracted someone to empty out the house and they had no idea what was behind those walls and they found these thousands of paintings stuffed everywhere. Dr Arthur's own life changed when she received an urgent phone call to save the discovered artworks. The call came from a stock and land auctioneer charged with selling them off. He said, I'm an auctioneer from Elders in South Australia and I've got this estate 
to auction. And we've discovered what he said was a lot of paintings. He said, when I say a lot of paintings, I mean thousands of paintings. And the family have said they're rubbish, get rid of them. I don't think they are. And that was how it started. And he said, the auction's in two days. Could you come over tomorrow and assess them? So everything else was cancelled and off I went to South Australia, went to the warehouse on the outskirts of the town, walked into that room and was absolutely speechless because there were these hundreds, thousands of paintings all around the walls, stacked in the middle. Most amazing sight. I said to him, no, these are not rubbish. This is very important. Although he's unknown to the art world, she believes his talent and mind were extraordinary. I mean, the skill is quite amazing. He was obviously very influenced by the, uh, the great modernist painters of the 19th century, Kandinsky, Mondrian, Clay. You could see that he was involved mentally with so many social issues, with environmental issues, Aboriginal issues, ancient history, modern history, archaeology. It's all there in the paintings and in the titles. His work's over here is where he had a whole series for example, they're just a few from the series, but he would paint, as I said, up to about 45, could be in a series. The collection is owned by Merv and Jenny Heemskirk, who have loaned works for this exhibition at the Hamilton Art Gallery in Western Victoria. This show in particular, about there being a secret of 7,000 paintings, I can't say that over the 60-year history of the gallery that that's occurred before. Joshua White is the director of the Hamilton Art Gallery. Some of the actions have been really, really overwhelming for some of the audience members, particularly at the opening. We had a number of audience members who were crying in relation to the story behind the artist. Now, they're an outsider artist, so there's no impact from the art market, no formal training. In order to produce this number of works in the time span he had, he just didn't stop. And I think the collection will become very significant, very significant indeed. What's special about it is it grows in very few places. A lot of it was cleared for agriculture, so a small range and then quite a lot of past clearance. It is a really beautiful tree, so one of the original threats to that population was people going to collect foliage for florist arrangements. Dr Magali Wright is describing a eucalypt tree, commonly known as Morrisby's gum. This tree is found in parts of Tasmania and is critically endangered. The adult foliage has a, a grey green to it. It has a silvery kind of blush on the capsules, the flower buds and the young leaves are round and they have that same bluish blush to them. Hello, I'm Fiona Breen and I'm chatting to Dr Wright, who's part of a team working to ensure the survival of this species of tree in the face of a changing climate here in southeastern Tasmania. 
It's the fragmentation that's happened with, with clearance and the fact that what we have remaining of them are on the drier slopes. So they've kind of lost their optimal habitat where in their native range, which would have been down on the flats where, where there was a bit more moisture in the landscape. And what's left of them is on the drier slopes and they're not doing so well there. Dr Wright and other scientists are working on a bold project to help this species of tree to migrate. And they've found a new home for these gum trees in a climate that will be more agreeable into the future. We've done plantings in what's predicted to be a, a future climate range for them. We're taking all of that genetic diversity that we have and we're putting it in a place that they're more likely to be happy under a changing climate. It's something that we really need to think about with probably all of our eucalypt species. We've just driven up from the Cremorne area and have come up to the east coast just near Triabunna and we're at a place where they've planted 1,000 of these Morrisby gums. And I'm here with Dr. Rebecca Jones, who's been involved with this project. We're looking out at these small Morrisby gums at the moment. Are you happy with how it's going? Yeah, they're about, they're about a year old and um, we've had 97% survival at just one year of age. So we're really pleased, really heartened with um, how, they're, how they're doing at the moment. They're looking great. It remains to be seen, of course, in the drying years ahead, how they go. Why have you done this? Why, why go for this sort of transmigration? Uh, well, what we're doing is we're helping these species that are um, predicted to decline further under climate change. This is one of the broad climate sites that was predicted for Marisbii to inhabit under climate change. It can't get here very easily by itself. Seed in eucalypts doesn't move very far just a few metres. So we had to help it move into this area here. So in essence, climate change is moving faster than the Morrisby gum can can move itself or catch up or, or adapt. That's right. So yeah, under climate change, species might, well, they could go extinct, which we don't really want to happen. They might adapt or evolve um, to that new climate, but we know that they're unlikely to be able to do that at a rate. You know, So all of these species around here have evolved to climate change, but the climate change that we're predicting is going to happen much more rapidly um, than the natural climate change that they've experienced, and so they're unlikely to be able to evolve to that. And then the third thing they might do is move to more suitable areas, but trees can't move very easily, uh, so we have to give them a helping hand. So is this a bit of a test case in a way of sort of saving a, a gum tree that really was close to extinction? Yeah, well, what we hope to achieve from this, other than helping this species survive through climate change, is an understanding of um, whether our models work, whether we can predict where species are going to be happier under climate change. And so by embedding experiments um, in these plantings, we'll be able to answer those questions in the future as we assess them. So do you think that this assisted migration of species might be something we see more of in the future? Yeah, well, we're facing an extinction crisis and people need to be um, bold in their um, conservation actions. So while I think it's important to conserve species in their native range and put a lot of effort into that, I think it's also important to start thinking about moving species into the range um, that they're predicted to be able to inhabit under climate change. It's It sounds scary, but it's, it's a fact of life that some eucalypts might end up being threatened. 
Yeah, so at the moment, this is one of the most threatened species, uh, eucalypt species in Australia, um, but it's likely that we'll have species that at the moment are very widespread that may um, become endangered. And so what we learn from um, the experiments that we're doing here will help us design conservation strategies for those um, species that might be not under threat at the moment. Dr. Rebecca Jones from the University of Tasmania. She was speaking to Fiona Breen about a project to assist the migration of threatened gum trees to ensure the species survive into the future. You can read more on that story and also more on that fascinating story from Emily Bisland about the treasure trove of artworks produced by a reclusive artist in country South Australia. You'll find them both on the ABC homepage. Just look for A Big Country. I'm Clint Jasper with you for a big country still to come how growing flowers for the cut flower market is proving to be a perfect side project for a young mum with a love of gardening and after commercial whaling drove the majestic mammals to the brink of extinction numbers on Australia's east coast are booming and so are the tourists Pat Heaney has this story from southern Queensland there's a secret highway off Australia's east coast and this time of year, all of the traffic is going in one direction, south. A record number of humpback whales are heading towards Antarctica and on the way, calling in for a pit stop in the calm waters off Gari Fraser Island. We know the population has reached at least 40,000. Whale watching tours are almost guaranteed multiple sightings each trip and researchers are collecting more data than ever before. It's a far cry from the days when whales were hunted for oil and other products. They were taken to the bridge of extinction. The impact of commercial whaling on this group of whales was, was devastating. Uh, estimates suggest that by the early 60s, as a result of over-whaling in Antarctica and along the coastline of Australia and New Zealand, the population crashed. And in the case of the Eastern Australian population, only 150 individuals survived. Marine scientist Dr Wally Franklin has been researching humpback whales in Harvey Bay for more than three decades. Harvey Bay is a credibly important and globally unique habitat for humpback whales. It's a shallow watered protected habitat and it's just below the breeding areas at the southern part of the reef. So it's an area where mothers with new calves, they come into Harvey Bay, giving the calves uh, time for physical development as well as social development and also they're nurturing and feeding the calves. So Harvey Bay as a habitat has played a vital role in the reproductive capacity of this group of whales. He describes it as a privilege to watch the gentle giant's numbers return to glory. All the whales we're enjoying in our whale watching tours ha have all descended from that group of whales and made a miraculous recovery. But of course over the last 30 years we've, we've been able to watch with a great deal of joy uh, the incredible recovery of the Eastern Australian whales recovering at 10% per annum. It's been uh, an absolute joy of, of my career and to actually be able to be out in the field and both observe and collect data on that uh, remarkable recovery. 
Dr. Franklin says the high numbers mean the population will soon reach a natural peak. So that number is, uh, we expect, getting close to what we call carrying capacity. And what happens with carrying capacity is that the number of whales that are born uh, equals the number of whales that die from natural causes, so the population flattens. But it's not only the numbers that are up. Tourism operators say the spike in whale numbers has meant a jump in whale watches. This was on our bucket list, so no, we're totally stoked. To me, it's breathtaking. It's quite, you know, quite profound, actually, yeah. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Just once-in-a-lifetime experience, I reckon. Peter Lynch runs whale-watching tours in Harvey Bay. He is happy to see the whales recovering, but warns the fight for the species' future isn't over. It's looking like it's been a pretty strong season so far. We've actually had a really good number of whales coming to the bay, better than the last couple of seasons. Certainly there were days where there were just whales as far as I could see across the bay. I guess the biggest concern right now is protecting the oceans so the whales can continue to survive. There's no point saving them from being harpooned if we can't save the environment. Dr Wally Franklin agrees and says there's a lot of work to be done. It's a very good sign, uh, but we can't take it as something that enables us to sit back and say it's all done with humpback whales. It isn't. There's an incredible list of research questions that we need to address. And the fundamental question that we need to be looking at is what impact is climate change going to have on this population? What a great future we have for whale research in this amazing part of the world in the Wide Bay region. Yeah. This uh, patch right here, this is the Iceland poppies patch and it's just finished its season, but I really love the Iceland poppies because they're beautiful cut flower. They come in all different colors. They've got beautiful big long stems here. Like if you can see this one flower, it's probably, the stem length is probably 50 centimeters. Mm. And they're really tough, so they can handle those strong winds. Mm. Definitely one of my favorites and definitely something that I'll grow each year. So this season I, I put 1200 seedlings in the ground and you know, it was amazing. Well, and they just have the most beautiful colours. Absolutely. Yep, they come in all the different colours. Pastel, bright reds, um, white, and the, the big pops of the yellow and the orange. It's amazing. On this property near Tamworth in northwest New South Wales, Shona Robiliad is growing tough but stunning blooms. Yeah, so these are straw flowers, also known as uh, paper daisy. And if you feel them, you can, you know, they feel like paper. Oh, they really do, don't they? Yeah, they're amazing. Ah. So they look great in bouquets or installations or whatever you want to do with them or just by themselves in a vase, but they're also great for drying as well. Down here we've got some status. I do grow the status because I love to dry. It dries really well as well, mm. but as you can see, it comes in a range mm. of colours. Um, it's a great filler for bouquets as well. And then just across over here, we have a whole collection of colours and these flowers almost look I suppose like bells maybe? Yeah they do yeah the snapdragons. If you play around with them you can see they've got like a little bit of a mouth. Hello I'm Lara Webster and Shona is showing me through her beautiful and colourful flower patch. 
The move into growing cut flowers was a natural progression for Shona, who has had a long-time love of gardening. Well, I've always lived on the land um, and I've always had gardens. I've always had a passion for gardening. Um, and I guess I've, you know, I always had veggie gardens and they were always huge uh, for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> I started uh, playing with putting flower seeds in amongst the veggies just to attract the bees and the pollinators and all of that. And then I really liked the flowers that I started growing and then I experimented with some cut flower varieties and then it just sort of grew from there. I found myself just waiting, like I couldn't wait any longer for the veggies to finish so I could pull them out of the ground and plant more flowers. So then after a few years I decided, no, I'm not going to plant veggies anymore. I'm just going to do a flower patch and see how that goes. And yeah, it's just, I haven't stopped really. I've just kept going with the flowers. And I love it because you, you're just always learning about different varieties and yeah, so you, you just have to research and it's a lot of trial and error. Well, it's been three years since yeah. you started your flower farm. Tell me about that journey over the three years. So that hasn't been easy. So the first year, um, it was, you know, my, my patch was quite small and I was you know no one knew who I was so I sort of struggled to sell the flowers so that was a bit of a learning curve and that sort of took me to the whole social media side of it all where I learnt that social media is quite important for a small business or a startup so that was that was the first year and then the second year my whole crop got taken out by the floods that was a bit of a disaster as well and now here we are and we've just come out of one of Australia's hottest winters so uh, yeah I've had more crop failures with that that comes with the territory really I'm, I'm here now and we're standing in front of mm. or kneeling in front of beautiful bright snapdragons so yeah you win some and you lose some with flower farming I guess. What is it that keeps you coming back and digging up the ground and planting again? Yeah, I think I'm a little bit, it's probably, um, I guess it's just passion when it comes, you know, at the end of the day, it's just the passion for growing and farming. Maybe a little bit stubborn? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, some people probably think that I'm a bit mad by doing it because it's extremely physical, it's hard work and I do have two small kids Mm -hmm. and so juggling all of that, um, yeah, it's it's hard, but I guess I just love doing it. And I I love seeing something start from nothing, so a seed, you know, and, you know, raising it and growing it and then seeing it produce beautiful flowers and then the reaction on people's faces when they buy the flowers from you or they receive the flowers from you, I think that's why I do it. Well, it sounds like a fair reason to be doing it. You mentioned there you're a mum of two young children. How do you find trying to juggle all of this with a young family? Uh, Well, you would have seen the porticot down here. (laughs) I know, it's just over the back there. Yeah, yeah. So Poppy, my four and a half month old, she does spend a little bit of time in there. And I just try and do whatever I can. But it's hard, you know, like we, like they say, it takes a village to raise the children. And I do rely heavily on my my mum, my mother-in-law and my partner and daycare but you know like I'm I'm very lucky I have a very good support crew around me and yeah they do whatever they can to try and assist me. Just to go back a step Poppy is there (laughs) any relation to the (laughs) love of flowers? Yeah so Iceland poppies they're one of my favorite flowers and I just thought it was you know quite nice and well they are beautiful flowers I'm sure you have a beautiful (laughs) little girl. Uh, Shona you mentioned there about being a mum and I've noticed sort of even since I've come back from my own maternity leave around Tamworth 
and and some of the outerlying areas there's suddenly been almost like what seems like a boom in flower farms and a lot seem like they're families young working mothers do you know what's going on there have you had got some of your own thoughts have you noticed that yourself that we're seeing more and more local flower growers yeah there is there's been a real boom in the last 18 months i think um and a lot of the new flower farmers are all my friends. Um, just like myself, I think we're just, you know, women on the land and um, just want to be at home with our kids and gardening too, you know, just, just being at home and starting something, doing something for ourselves and for our family. And, and gardening, growing cut flowers, I guess, is the perfect sort of ideal yeah, setting. How much of this too, I mean, I know you have the kids a lot with you while you're doing this, but how much of it is also a little bit of you time? It's something just for you. You're not mum, you're not being pulled in every different direction, you're not helping out on the rest of the farm for a few minutes. Oh, it's every time I come down here. So every morning, you know, I'm excited to look at the flowers. I'm excited to see the flat, like new varieties that have flowered overnight. Um, I'm excited to see how much things have grown. And I just, I love coming down here and just walking the patch and seeing where everything's at and, you know, making, making a note in my head, this thing needs watering or this patch, these, you know, this needs that. And yeah, I just, I love it. I just, it's my time every time I come down here. Shona Rabilliard, a flower grower near Tamworth in northwest New South Wales. She was speaking with reporter Lara Webster. For more on all of the stories you've heard on today's program, head online to the ABC homepage, abc.net.au, and look for A Big Country. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening, and bye for now. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 